show. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, October the 11th. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between. Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Workman. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a great Friday. I hope you have a great weekend. Hope you've had a great week. Tonight, the U.S. take on Cuba, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what's going on. Um, I don't know that at this point there's anything to be quote unquote excited about, but um, you know, we we will see. Um, We are in the middle of an international break. Um, and you know, no club, no club soccer this weekend. And, and so kind of, a you know, slow weekend in terms of some news, any, any kind of updates. One of the, one of the things that I, that I did see was, um, yesterday on ESPN, why Dest should represent Netherlands, not the U.S. men's national team. That's something we've been talking about here on the show um, for for about a week or so. Because to anyone that is looking at it from a footballing perspective, opportunity perspective, etc., if Dest has a legitimate shot, it's a no-brainer move. The only reason why I would I would suggest the U.S. men's national team is number one. Now, if your heart's just completely set on the U.S. men's national team, that's one thing, right? It's hard to argue with the heart. Secondly, if you don't feel like you're going to get a legitimate shot with, with the Netherlands, then yeah, I mean, that makes sense as to why you would look at the U.S. national team. Other than that, everything, everything is, um, is stacked in favor of the Netherlands. And, you know, as much as, um, as much as we would, you know, love to fancy that the U.S. men's national team is a dream destination, it's it's not. And and anyone, you know, not wearing rose colored glasses, um, would know that. Yesterday also was the the two year anniversary of the colossal failure at Trinidad and Tobago in World Cup 2018 qualifying. That happened on October the 10th, 2017. And the question then be- begs, uh, what has happened since? Where is the progress? Where where are the reforms? Where are the changes? The new processes, the new personnel, all of those things to change the trajectory and the path of the U.S. men's national team, the program at large, the national team on a senior level, uh, more specifically. But overall, I mean, we we failed to qualify for the last two Olympics on the men's side. Where is progress? Where is a tangible plan that we can see? Hey, these things are not only going to get better, but they are getting better. One of the one of the things that I look at over the last two years is I, I think we have wasted an opportunity. 
And, and here's what I mean by that. The reason why I would use the word wasted is for a variety of reasons. Number one, the failure was an opportunity to hit the reset button. To do a deep, deep internal introspective look at who we are as a country, as a federation on a macro level. Now, I think a lot of the the national members, the voting members of the National Council of U.S. Soccer, I think a lot of them did. Um, I saw that traveling the country, meeting people, talking to people, uh, working with Eric Winaldo when he was running for president of U.S. Soccer. And so I, I heard a lot of that feedback that there were a lot of people that said hey let's hit the reset button here let's let, let's find a way to get this right to do it better we should not be failing to qualify for the world cup we haven't taken that opportunity due to the the rules of u.s soccer the election rules of u.s soccer Status quo remained. Carlos Cordero, the reigning vice president, a, a, a member of the board for 10 years, who was part of all of the issues, assumed power as president. The following year, Cindy Parlo Cohn, member of the Athlete Council that famously partnered with Carlos Cordero and uh, in the status quo to vote in uh, Carlos Cordero as president. She assumes the throne as vice president in an uncontested election. So in the two years, just on a federation level, haven't seen a lot of progress. Other areas where I feel like it was wasted is even if we didn't change things at a federation level, which that's where the buck stops. That's the ultimate level of accountability and leadership. Every organization's got that layer, has got that ending point of where accountability ultimately resides with. And that is usually with the whatever the executive office or branch of an organization is. That's where the buck should stop. So where does the ultimate oversight and, account and, and accountability layer or level or position for an organization? That's where you should look. That's why on a macro level, we have to look at the federation. They are ultimately the ones responsible. When you go down that org chart, you start looking at the other things. Now you're looking at, for example, another wasted opportunity, how we handled the coaching issue after the failure. We don't immediately sack Bruce Arena. But eventually, weeks later, we finally part ways with Bruce Arena. But we allow his assistant to become really kind of a caretaker, interim manager for a year to try to let him oversee the program hoping that the angst of the public would die a little bit so that we could put the COO's brother, a coach in Major League Soccer at the time, install him as head coach 
of the U.S. men's national team. So the worst-kept secret in American soccer finally happened a year later with the hiring of Greg Berhalter. Now, this is this is has nothing to do with, at, at that time, of whether or not Greg Berhalter was the right candidate, whether he's the right coach, whether he was qualified or good enough for the position. We're just looking at the process here, right? We don't immediately sack the coach. We don't follow that up with progress. We take the next year off and just let the program sit in limbo. All the while, instead of looking forward and trying to bring in young talent because the Federation didn't have a plan, they didn't have an action plan, we waste that year in an interim caretaker status, finally bringing in a year later, Greg Berhalter, and the results under Greg Berhalter have not been promising. The team doesn't look good. Um, player selections, who's coming into camp, head scratchers a lot of times. It just looks like the program's going nowhere fast. When you look back over what's happened in the last two years, I think you can make the argument, not only have we not made progress, I think you can make the argument on the men's side of the ledger, we've actually gone backwards or fallen further behind at the very least because other countries are getting better. Mexico's better now than they were two years ago. And that's an issue for us. We're both in CONCACAF. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. They are the makers of some really cool products. We talk about them every day on this show. And uh, one of those that I want to highlight today is, uh, is their waterproof paper. If you've ever laid a notebook on the ground in training and then pick it up, uh, you know, because you were showing someone something or, you know, you wanted to use both hands to kind of demonstrate and then you go pick up your notebook and it's like soaking wet from the dew. It doesn't even have to be raining. It's a real bummer. Well, Ducktick Brand has solved that issue for you with their waterproof paper uh, in, in some of their notebooks. Check them out at ducktickbrand.com and use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. We'll be right back with Aaron West.
Welcome back into the show. We are excited to have joining us Aaron West. He is the host of BR Football's Out Here. And um, we are, are excited to have you, Aaron. How are you this morning? I'm good, man. I'm a little bit sick, but I'm good. Good to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Well, look, thanks for uh for, for for showing up sick um if if you were my kids they might be like calling in sick and <laughs> dad i need to just stay in bed but uh we, we appreciate you uh spending some time with us this morning um so uh before we kind of get into kind of what you're doing right now as 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 host of of BRs um, out here, uh, give us a little bit of background about you. Uh, how did you originally, you know, get connected to the game itself, and and give us a little bit of kind of you know personal background on on you and and your love for the game. Yeah, yeah, I'll make a very very long story short. Um, I was born and raised in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's from most people from the U.S. They know that is like basketball country. Uh, both of my parents went to UNC. My dad was actually a track coach. He was the first black head uh, coach in the ACC at UNC. Um, so I had no soccer background. But when I was three, my mom's best friend introduced us to the sport. And I just fell in love. Like that was it for me. It was the sport for me. So I started playing. Uh, my brother's three years older. I started playing on his team because there was no organized soccer at three. So I'd just go and like kick around and play with his team. Uh, started to organize, ended up going. Um, I was actually homeschooled all through high school um, into college, but ended up uh, playing club soccer in, in the Chapel Hill Raleigh area. Um, got a partial scholarship to go play for Davidson College. Um, played all four years there. And then very, very, I want to, I will say like the most mini, minimal, uh, uh, career, if you can call it that afterwards, uh, tried to play for a couple of different clubs and was just constantly injured. Um, got one contract offer that was so small. It, it, like I almost laughed, but it was, it was, uh, it wasn't offer, but, um, it just with the injuries and the way that, uh, I saw my career going, it didn't feel worth it to, to continue to try and be a professional soccer player and just be hurt all the time and not make any money. So, um, when I was around 20, out, right out of college, um, I was still trying to play and trying to figure it out. So I started working for an education outreach company. Um, and from there started just kind of blogging on the side. Um, and over the next few years I worked in social media and just kind of freelancing, um, trying to figure out my life, um, just was really heavy on social media, especially Twitter in the soccer sphere, writing, blogging. Um, I picked up a couple freelance gigs working here and there. And then kind of my big break, so to speak, was in 2016, um, when I got the offer to go write for Fox sports out in LA. So I was there for a little over a little under a year and a half as a writer, just covering, mainly European soccer, but basically everything in the soccer world for Fox Sports. And then when they made the big pivot, uh, they were the first major company to make the pivot from uh, uh, just completely, I mean, not completely uh, written, but they completely pivoted away from written content to video. Thank you, Facebook, for your inflated views. Um, <laughs> but when that happened, I left Copa and actually myself pivoted to, I mean, sorry, I left Fox and pivoted to video um, and started my kind of on-camera career at Copa 90. Um, and I went there with a view to kind of run their social media, revamp their social media, uh, their voice on social media, 
do some on camera and do a good bit of writing for docs, explainers, things like that. And it morphed into a lot of on camera and then like almost all on camera. And then I stepped away from the social, still did some writing. Um, so it was just mainly on camera. And then Copa actually ended up cutting their U.S. content team at the beginning of 2019. And from there, I just decided to stay freelance for a while. Um, did the Women's World Cup, uh, a few other things, uh, a few other projects that I really, really enjoyed. And then uh, got the opportunity to, to cover Champions League with BR Football, which is what I'm doing now. That's the show that I'm hosting with them called Out Here. So that was a, a long, short version of, of how I got to where I am today. <laughs> Well, first off, um, as a as a Duke basketball fan, uh, I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry that you grew up in such a downtrodden and horrible home life uh, there as a as a as a Tar Heel. Um, you know, I mean, it's like it's like people growing up as Yankee fans. It's just a terrible way to grow up. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so I, w- I want to kind of jump back in your story for a second. Obviously, North Carolina, uh, you know, is famous uh, on their women's side with the college soccer program. But, you know, their men's soccer has, has been no slouch. And, and Duke has a pretty good program as well. You've got, you got a lot of, of good college soccer programs there in the ACC. Um Growing up in the area, obviously your dad, you know, being uh, on the facu- faculty at UNC, um, what what was the environment like around growing up in terms of soccer in the Triangle of North Carolina? Is it something that's that's followed closely by the locals? Is it just something in the background? You know, when you were growing up, uh, what was the conversations like surrounding, you know, say the, the UNCs and the Dukes and the, you know, Wake Forest, the NC States and the other ACC schools in terms of, of college soccer? Yeah, man, it was a really, really cool time to come up because soccer wasn't really huge around the rest of the country, but it was, it was pretty big in the triangle. Um, we had a lot of good players, um, growing up in that area and especially being from Chapel Hill being like women's soccer was King, but like you said, the men's soccer team was actually really, really good when I was coming up as well. So it was kind of like a a, a golden age. We lived close enough and we, we were on campus all the time. So I would go out and kick around with, with some of the women's players, with some, depending on who was out there, like we would just go out to the training fields um, and just kick around. Uh, I remember when I was young, I used to go out and like shoot on Siri Mullenix, who played for UNC, played for the national team. And that was like when I was like 10 years old. So I, I it was an amazing, like a really, really cool experience being in that area because it was such a kind of soccer cauldron. Um, and especially in that time, I'm 33 years old, like most, it, it was not a huge sport in the U.S. Like even outside of kind of like directly in Chapel Hill or in Raleigh, like people would see me kicking a soccer ball and be like, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you playing basketball or football or baseball? But specifically in Chapel Hill and in that kind of triangle area, it was really it was a really, really cool time to come up loving the game. Again, for the audience, uh, we feel for Aaron and having to grow up in Chapel Hill in that uh horrible shade of blue but somebody had to do it 
<laughs> I always mess with, uh, you know, uh, people who, who went to North Carolina or, or are N- North Carolina fans. Cause what's a rivalry if you can't, uh, if you can't have a little fun with it. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so you come up, you, you grew up as you described in kind of a, a golden era and, and, and also just geographically, in a good spot, you know, to, for the game, uh, had access, uh, to the game and, and, you know, was kind of a hot pocket, you could say, um, for, for development, for players, interest, etc. And you, you make it to Davidson. One of the, one of the first questions I would have for you with, with your playing career was, was one of your goals and ambitions to, when you got out of college was to play professionally or was that something that, you know, you thought about later on, like as college was coming to a close or, or growing up, was there this idea of like, Hey, I'd like to, to, to see if I could make it as a pro. Yeah, it was extremely strong when I was younger and kind of waned when I got into college and both realized that I was extremely injury prone. Um, Number two, I kind of fell out of love with the the playing experience a little bit while I was in college. It was just college is a tough grind. It's too many games in too short of a period. You don't get to train a ton. Um, it's like a weird system. I hated the running subs. So the actual college soccer experience itself kind of soured me on the game a little bit at that time. Um, I still very strongly wanted to play. And then kind of as as I got towards the tail end of my career and realized that I was injury prone, there were a lot of really, really good players out there uh, that I wouldn't make any money. (laughs) Um, And then just kind of the combination of not enjoying training, falling out of love with the experience, my, my kind of determination to be a pro, I wouldn't say it was the strongest from the start. Like I, I definitely had a chance and thought I would, would be in MLS possibly. And then as I got into it, through college, I was just like, I, I don't love this playing as much as I, I used to. This is, it, it kind of, I kind of, I kind of got burned out during college. And then after college was when I really, really dis- rediscovered my love for the game and was like, should I continue to try and grind? And like there, I have a, a few friends or, or teammates that, that I played with um, some of whom were way better. Some of whom were, weren't as talented, but it's really at, at that level. It's like, how much do you want to be a pro? And I realized I didn't want to be a pro that badly. Like I, I really just didn't want to do it. Like it's a crazy grind. And I didn't want to put myself through that to just call myself a pro soccer player and, and be on a team and, and not start my professional development. I kind of saw that even if I did become a pro, it probably wouldn't be like a decade long thing. It wouldn't be 15 years. I, I would have to get a job eventually. So I kind of cut out the the pain and suffering of grinding to be a pro and said, uh, you know what, this maybe isn't for me. I'm going to try and get a real job. <laughs> so your, your pro opportunities, you mentioned, uh, you know, that the, the pay wasn't great. What kind of a, a ballpark uh, of pay were, were you looking at in terms of opportunities? Cause I think a lot of people, you know, major league soccer, um, you know, it has, come uh you know from where it started in the 90s to where it is today uh certainly is on better footing than than what it was back then uh, but a lot of kids growing up today they have a view of champions league of the barcelona's real madrid's liverpool's manchester united so on and so forth 
And, you know, they, they, if they're thinking about dreaming about uh, desiring to play pro football, that's usually kind of where they go when you talk to most kids in the U.S. Um, but the realities of the American pro opportunities are not anywhere near the level of what you see over in Europe. So what are some of those realities that you came into, you know, to face uh, when you were, were at least entertaining the idea of a pro playing career? Do you have a ballpark range of kind of some of those opportunities you had? Yeah. We're talking like um, an offer for a USL team of like 800 a month with no housing and you're training every day and playing. So you almost can't even get like a regular job. So you can't afford to live. You have to play all the time and maybe get like a night job. So I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so in, in the, it becomes very tough, right? At that point to kind of really say, I'm going to go all in, uh, when at $800 a month, um, it's almost, you know, impossible. You're obviously living below the poverty line, um, as defined by the, the U S government at that point. Um, yeah. And, it, and for me, it was like one of those things. I don't, I didn't feel it was worth it to call myself a pro soccer player to go through training every day, which I didn't enjoy. And I was, I realized I just like to play, pick up playing games and things like that. I just love to have the ball at my feet, but I hated training. And that combination of all of it, especially with not being paid anything and just my body being broken constantly, I was just like, it's not worth it. It's really just not worth it for me. <laughs> what What about, um, what was that like for you in terms of coming to the realization, you, you know, for yourself, like, I don't know that I love this as much as maybe I thought I would or, you know, just to kind of go and say, Hey, look, I'm just going to look myself in the mirror and go, this isn't for me. What, what was that like for you? Was that a short process? There was there kind of a dramatic moment or was it just kind of over time? You just kind of was like, you know what? Like this isn't for me. Like how, how was that process for you? Cause I think, you know, a lot of people, you grow up with certain goals or ambitions and then, you know, you like, like, for example, you talk to a kid and you'll, you hear a kid say, I want to be a policeman when I grow up. But then, you know, you start growing up and you're like, I'm I'm not going to be a policeman. Um, so for you going, Hey, I want to be a pro soccer player. You, you mentioned the older you got, it started to kind of wane and then college soccer really put a damper on some things as well in terms of your passion and love level for things in terms of not enjoying the training and all of those things that did that start because of college and then kind of carried on or, or did, were you just one of those players that just never really enjoyed training and like what was that process like for you that realization process of man pro soccer and, and being a, a pro soccer player is just not for me yeah it, it i think it mainly started in college because i was always relatively injury prone but the college experience just kind of like packaged or like put all that into a tiny box and like really, really exacerbated it with the short season, uh, with the, the pace and like the way that the game, the college game is with running subs, or at least was, it's gotten better in, in recent years. It's more of a, a measured, like the players, the coaches don't just sub, uh, two, three times a half. It's more of a, uh, actual like measured game where, where there's possession and things like that. And it just, the it it started to wane in college frankly because 
uh, for all the reasons that it, it, a lot of people start to lose their their motivation for for uh, high level sports in college. Often, it's I I started I saw the social life. I was very like first my first freshman year. I I didn't I literally didn't do anything. I was like I I would hang out, but like I didn't really go out. I just wanted to be a, a footballer, and then you get injured, and then I didn't like the training. I wasn't super happy with the playing experience. I started to just see that there were more things than about the game um than just playing it um i I started to enjoy more of learning more about the actual world of football um i had always been obsessed with 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 reading about the game and researching about it just and as i got into college it just shifted more into hey man this playing experience is kind of sucks right now sometimes um and it it went it kind of just during college a little bit sapped my love for the actual playing part of the game but the other sides of it grew stronger which is partly why right out of college i like i kind of felt like my um i like i was twiddling my thumbs and i needed i felt like i had something to say about the game and couldn't really figure out what that needed to be so a friend of mine encouraged me to just start a blog and start writing my thoughts down and that was that was really when I like kind of saw the light and was like, Oh, this is the part of the game that I really, really love. Like I love to play pickup. I love to just go out with the ball on my own. I hate going to training. I don't really like being outside that much. I don't like being injured constantly. I don't like playing in the cold. <laughs> it was like all of these little things that I, I started to figure out, at, especially when I got into college um, and uh, I was injured for long periods. Um, I tore, I tore my groin. Um, when I was 15, I like, cracked a vertebra in my back. Um, I tore literally every muscle possible in college. I tore my groin. I tore my, tore my hamstring. I tore my quads. I tore my labrum. Um, I had a couple different surgeries. And so just all the, the off the downtime and then just being around people in college and, and having great conversations and learning and kind of honing the mental side of who I was as a person and emotional side kind of pushed me a little bit away from thinking that playing professionally was the end all be all, which is what I thought for so, so long. Um, and then just as I got a little bit older and realized that this may be, there was, there was kind of a crossroads. It's like, I could keep grinding and try, like it was around my junior year. I was like, I could, I just come off another surgery. And I was like, I could keep keep grinding and try to do this legitimately. And I could probably have a decent career. I could have probably, if I had tried to put my head down and just fight through the injuries, I would have probably been a, a USL player for two or three years. And if I, this is all very hypothetical and like the highest um, optimistic part, I could have played for two or three years, I think, in USL and maybe gotten a shot in MLS. Maybe, maybe. But for me at the time when I thought about what that meant and I saw that the minimum salaries in MLS were like $30,000. I was like, I'm going to grind for three years and make like $10,000 a year to then make $30,000 a year and then still be injured probably. Uh, So it, it just seemed logical to me like, Hey man, you're really not that good. Why don't you just get a real job? (laughs) (laughs) So 
how much do you think uh, the realities of the really the low salaries in the American professional game in, 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 in those low salaries still exist today? Um, you know, especially relative to you know the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball. Um, you know, if you're a kid growing up and you you want to be a pro soccer player in and play professionally in the u.s um you know like you just talked about i mean you might grind for two or three years making you know really kind of part-time pay and then you're hoping to you know maybe make if you get to mls you can get a league minimum i think it's up now around 50 60 grand a year uh still nowhere near the levels of of a kid who may grow up saying hey i want to i want to play in the nba kind of thing um how much do you think that has an effect on some really good players in this country quitting the game just because they don't see a pathway. They don't see it being a realistic opportunity. And therefore, not only is our, our, our professional level of soccer in terms of domestic players not being uh, as good a quality as it could be because we're losing players for that, but even possibly uh, down the road, even even affecting like our national team. Uh, how much do you think the, that the limit, limitations of financial opportunity is having a a negative or adverse effect on our player pool. Yeah, I think there's kind of two trains of thought there. It's like people like me um, who would never have played for the national team anyway. uh, They, they might be discouraged by, by the pay. Uh, But to be fair, most people, most players who are going to play at the highest, highest, highest levels, they're not super motivated by the pay anyway. They're just motivated by the love of the game for training, for being out there literally every day. And I wasn't one of those people. I was talented and I worked hard. But for me to be a pro, it would have taken like an like an extra effort on my part just because of my personality. And part of that was that I was driven by I wanted to make good money. I, I would never wanted to be rich, but I at least wanted to be able to live on my salary. <laughs> um and so I think for people kind of like me, that is a big deterrent. But honestly, I think one of the biggest issues is that for a kid, say, if you're a kid who grows up in a, a, a economically unstable situation, say you you grew up kind of poor and you want to be a pro athlete and you look at you want to be a pro athlete in this country and you want to get out of a situation where you have no money, you're immediately going to look at basketball, football, baseball, um, maybe even hockey, because they make good money. If you want to get out of a financial situation, you're not going to play soccer in this country because you be middle class, basically. Like, no one's going, no one really wants to come from being poor to just middle class uh, unless they're working a regular job. People play sports because it's fun, but also because you can get yourself out of a really extraordinarily poor financial situation and become an instant millionaire you can do that with basketball you can do that with football you can do that with baseball you cannot do that with soccer in this country right now um and i think that actually is a deterrent for some people picking up the sport at the lower levels who could be uh special at this game 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm from an area where we've seen some of the, you know, poorest of poor find their way um, out of their, their situations into college, uh, you know, in playing American football and into the NFL and, uh, and, and, and incredible players, incredible talents, but uh, you know, that was their reality. It was like, this is my way out. Like I have to, I, I have to find a way out. I mean, there's a player right now in the NBA, DeMarcus Cousins, who's from where, where I am from. And, you know, that was, you know, his pathway was, was getting out, getting to Kentucky and then getting to the NBA. So um, I, I agree. I think, I think that He's is a, Alabama. yeah, man, um, right on the Gulf, two hours east of New Orleans. Um, and uh, so we're, we, we're right in the, the, uh, hotbed heart of SEC country and um and and so like my high school is we put like six players in the NFL and um which you know we shouldn't get one because uh the suburb where I grew up grew up as a as a town of like twenty five thousand people so we shouldn't be putting one player in the NFL much less six but it's the water it, it's it's in the water here <laughs> I mean, uh, as, as everyone knows um, Alabama fans are you know you can you can argue uh, around the country but you're wrong I'll just tell you you're wrong I live here I deal with these people um, they are the most ardent craziest fanatics uh, of a college football team that exists in the country. So all of you Ohio State fans and Michigan fans and everyone else, you can think that you love your team as much as they do. And I've heard others be delusional and think that, but um, it's just not true. Uh, you come here and live and you'll understand. It's the only way I can explain it to people. The passion level here is just insane and um you know, it, it, it's 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 a reality of of kids growing up here, but for them, it's it's a there is a way out in in, in you know football or or in the case of like Demarcus uh, with with basketball um, and others who who have made it in, in baseball. So um, you know, soccer is not really uh, you know a big big thing here. I mean, our currently our our biggest export uh state of alabama wise uh in terms of of soccer is going to be chris richards but he had to leave the state in order to even find a pathway out um in in going to houston as a kid and and living away from his parents and then making it into the fc dallas fc dallas academy and before finding his way to Bayern munich so um you know even then his pathway uh to try to make it to a to a pro uh started even beyond before um even looking at college and how do i make it domestically he, he had to figure out how to make it domestically just to get scouted so right. um, you know th- there, there's just so many realities facing kids um these are areas for me it's something i talk about every day on the show for me where i i i just feel like there's so many things we could do to to make it better um and and a lot of that has to do with just creating an environment and a system and structure that provides more opportunity and access because I, I really, you know, feel like there's a lot of kids. Um, and I've, I've seen it with, you know, my brother-in-law has been an inner city, you know, varsity soccer coach for years. And I've seen kids who, you know, it's like, you, you look at them like, man, if you only had a chance, 
you know, right. and it's just a sad reality. Like if you had a chance, um, and, and, and it's, it, it's, it's kind of depressing at times, but it, it, it also, um, you know, drives me to kind of, you know, try to make a difference in whatever way I can. And, um, and this show is actually, you know, part of that. And, um, so with you, I want to get back to you, uh, the, the, the transition from playing, covering the game, um, and, and really kind of saying, Hey, I have something to say here. I have a voice. Um, you know, when you were doing that, how, how long did it take you to kind of find your voice, like find how you wanted to cover the game, talk about the game, uh, et cetera. Um, it's honestly just been, uh, developing and evolving process throughout. I started out kind of just blogging mainly about, Juventus, who I loved, and just the, the game at large, just anything I would think about, um, I would just kind of write write down. Um, and I would be on Twitter just constantly. Uh, just Twitter, I gravitated to because I didn't, I grew up a Juventus fan. I picked them when I was 12, and it, it was as an English speaking kid from the South, um, especially a black kid, like I, there were no Juventus fans around. There was no one that I could talk to regularly. So gravitating to the internet and Twitter specifically was like the biggest thing in the world for me. It was amazing. I found my whole community of fans. So just being on Twitter and occasionally blogging, I started to find my voice. I started to realize that I would say things. It, it would, I would say things that I thought were obvious and then people would, would respond like, Oh, I didn't see that. And it, after this happening a few different times, I was like, okay, so I do have a perspective that people don't necessarily have and just kind of tried to, I was, I was just in the Twitter world, in the, in the internet world, just kind of giving my opinions, engaging in dialogue. And it just kind of progressed to the point where I was able to get a couple different freelance writing gigs. And to be fair, it, it has just constantly evolved. I've written like, I've written long, serious tactical pieces. I've written pieces about race in the game. I've written uh, short blog posts about goals. I've written joke posts. Like I've written and and done all kinds of things, but I think kind of the on-camera piece is really where it opened up because because people are visual. They don't read nearly as much. My running like joke um, when I wrote for Fox was like, did you read the headline or did, did you read the whole piece or did you just get angry at the headline? Uh, that would just, it's, it's a thing that people do. They don't care about what's in the actual body. They just see the headline. They assume they know what, what is because they don't like to read. Um, so working in a visual medium, working on camera has been really, really interesting because I do prefer to write. And if it was up to me, I'd be like sitting in my living room, probably writing, uh, like writing was my dream job, but uh, there is so much opportunity with video and, with what you're able to convey that I've I've really, really enjoyed this process and, and kind of, I've kind of sunk my teeth into the production process and I've I've started to really, really like it. Uh, So I would say that it's, it's just constantly evolved, but it's kind of hit the next plateau with being able to tell stories visually. Now in your storytelling, 
you are working with BR and doing a show out here. What are the, some of the kind of stories that you're covering and uh, where are you, where are you traveling and going to, to do those stories? Are, are, are you, are you mainly based U S when you're, when you're doing the, the work or are you traveling to Europe? And if so, what, what, what are some of those locations and stories that, uh, that you're looking to cover this season? Yeah, so without here, basically, we're looking to just flesh out Champions League, like the teams, the supporters, just the culture of Champions League for an American audience. So the very first piece I did was in uh, Athens, Greece with Olympiakos. Um, we, it was a very different from when the from in all the rest that we will do. We kind of we went and kind of snuck into Gate Seven. It's like their infamous ultras. Uh, area um i would say we probably shouldn't have snuck in but we did we went in there kind of filmed it from the inside um and then so our second one was way way different um we actually sat down with the with galatasaray in turkey they have a huge ultras group called ultraslan it's like um one of the if not the biggest supporters group ultras group in the world they're like 25 30 million deep um and it was one of those things where i I have known for a long time about the passion Turkish fans have for this game. And it, we really just wanted to flesh out how much these fans love their team and how much they care. So we went in, um, shot with ultra Aslan. They like fully embraced this. We went, I, I, on the, on one of the days I went to an ultra Aslan wedding. I went to a memorial service. I got to hang out with the guy they called the race. He's like their big boss, like the head of all ultra Aslan. Uh, and I didn't realize like how important this dude is to to Galatasaray supporters because when I was walking around before the match, like we were doing some player interview, some not player interview, some like interviews with fans, um, the word got around that I had met the ace, and like Galatasaray supporters were coming up to me to get pictures with me just because I had met the ace, and it was just one of those things where it's like this is next level over here. Um, so those were the first two trips we did. Um, next up, I am heading actually this Sunday ahead. Um, I'm going to do a couple interviews in England, but then we head to Ukraine to shoot with Shakhtar Donetsk. Um, and that is going to be an interesting one because it's kind of centered around the fact that they are originally based in a war zone, um, in Donetsk and their stadium actually got bombed. So they had to move. They now train in Kiev and they play in Kharkiv. Kharkiv is about six, seven hours drive from Donetsk. So some of their supporters still drive or a good number of their supporters will drive or take the train or whatever from Donetsk to Kharkiv to support their team. So we're going to kind of cover that whole um, angle of, of these supporters who will literally have risked life and limb and time and their everything about they, they'll have changed their lives to support their team. Um, and then after that, I believe we've got Croatia Zagreb and then RV Leipzig in Germany. And that'll end up, that'll end the year. And then from there, we'll kind of reevaluate once the knockout stages have been drawn and we will figure out what stories we're going to go tell from there. But basically it's just, we want the American audience to know how rich the culture is behind all of these teams, not just the, uh, the big teams, the Barcelona's, the Real Madrid's, the Bayern Munich's, the Juventus's of the world. Like everyone's heard of those teams, but not many have had an inside glimpse at like Olympiacos or or Galatasaray or Croatia Zagreb or 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 Shakhtar Donetsk teams like that. 
So um, I love the stories that you're covering and, and the clubs that you're covering. I, I tell people all the time, if you don't understand the the true like footballing culture until you get to Europe and just experience, it's just part of the day-to-day life and the fact that you guys are going around doing the show the way that you're you're doing it, I, I think is is so cool because uh, it, it does give people a, a, a glimpse, an insight into what it really is. Uh, I feel like um, sometimes it's from the federation and it's from MLS. Sometimes I think it's just uh, as a result of the fact that you know we are a country that's you know isolated by water on the east and the west that that there's this this isolationist mentality um within within the united states and then we see it uh, you know in in a political sense sometimes we see it in a cultural sense sometimes Uh, i think we definitely see it in our soccer uh uh sometimes as well where where we you know we think we know what that deep-rooted passion and footballing culture you know is and we'll we'll turn on the tv and we'll see like a portland uh or a seattle or an atlanta and we're like man it's like we're making it and i'm like we're we're not close go to your <laughs> like it's just because we could point out two or three examples right where uh you know where we see some really deep passion a detroit city right like just building some culture there in detroit with detroit city um and then I go, well, yeah, but that's like, you know, normal. I mean, that right. is the normal European, like, it's not even the crazies. It's just normal. Um, right, right. So I, I love the stories that you're covering there. You, you, you mentioned something a minute ago about your coverage of the game and something that you've talked about before and that you, you know, that you're passionate about. And that that had to do with, you know, race in the game. Um could you take a moment and kind of talk through some of your thoughts on on that and, and that subject specifically? Uh, yeah. Do you have any anything specific in mind, or just kind of? Well, I just wanted to kind of know what you know. What what is your general view about how do we you know where we are? Number one uh, in that you know uh, aspect, but number two, how can we improve where we are um, in in that area? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, you kind of mentioned, you touched on it a little bit earlier, just the geographic d- divide that's in this country. And you, I see it a, especially heavily now that I travel to Europe so often. And it's, uh, when I when I took the Fox job, I decided that I was living in D.C. at the time and I decided I wanted to do the cross-country drive from D.C. down I-10 route all the way across and, and head to L.A. So I did that with my best friend and it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Um, but it just put into perspective how big this country is and how much it doesn't really make sense that this is one country. Uh, like we were just driving across Texas, like 110 miles an hour, like people were flying by us and we're just driving in Texas and driving and driving and driving and driving. And it's like, this is one country. I mean, this is one state, like it should be probably three or four countries. It's the size of three or four countries. No, no one in Texas cares what anyone in the rest of the country is doing, especially like when you have 100, 200, 300 acres and don't literally even see other people. Um, this summer when I was in France, I um, covering the World Cup, we had a weekend off. So producer and a shooter and I drove from France 
uh, from Paris to Amsterdam. It was like a four and a half hour drive. We went through Belgium. You go through, uh, part, obviously parts of Holland you go through. So you like, you go through two or three countries. Um, and with the European union, like my producer was driving and we crossed into Belgium and I was like, Hey man, we just crossed into Belgium. And he was so confused. He was like, wait, what do we not have to like do anything? We don't have to like, we're, and we're already here. He was just confused about the system and like how close everything was and like how interchangeable everything was. And it's, that's like a long way to say that number one, our country is so, so big that football wise, it's hard to get everyone on the same page. It's hard to get everyone on the same page, just period. Um, we obviously have a, a big issue in this country with, with not just racism with, I think just ignorance. Um, uh, there's a lot of, with all the information that kind of is, is out in the world, there's a lot of misinformation. I don't know if you've ever read 1984, but I think it's a pretty interesting, uh, uh, I think it's a pretty interesting allegory that we do have so much doublespeak. We have so much misinformation that I think a lot of people are just kind of angry with their situations in general. And there's I, a lot of kind of, rhetoric around whether it be immigration whether it's race whether it's poverty just that there's a lot of hate in general and i think because our country is so big and it's so hard to get everyone on the same page it it trickles into soccer we see it with our national team we have no idea how we're going to play we have no idea we're going to pull our players from what what kinds of players do we want um and i think just because soccer has been for so long and is right now and a middle to upper middle middle class sport with also no real um, view to making money uh, in the U S like you can make okay money now, but I, I think there are just so, so many factors that from the outset have kind of precluded or prevented a lot of, of black people from getting into the sport. And then when we do get into the sport, it's, it, it has been really interesting there's not too many of us. And I think uh, in a long roundabout way of saying it, it's just there is, I, I think we don't really know exactly how we're going to handle this sport as a country overall. And then we haven't even got, come close to figuring out how we're going to handle minority participation in this sport. We, sh based on the demographics of this country, our national team should be probably half or three quarters Hispanic. Um, it, we should have a lot more black people in the national team. Um, but that's not shown because at the lowest levels of the sport, it's, I think a lot of people are uh, specifically black people are, do not play because of the, the barrier to entry is so high with pay to play. Um, when a lot of kids play rec and then drop out because once you get past rec, you're paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month just to play it selects challenge whatever it is and at the at those levels mo mostly the people that are paying are paying because they want their kids to get a college scholarship the goal for most parents in the u.s that have their kids playing soccer is not to make it to the national team it's to get it's to pad the resume it's to get a scholarship so that you can get into college easier or and or pay less money so most of what we have geared to in this country is both making money and sending kids to college. So it's not ideal for producing pros. It's not ideal for 
uh, pulling those who might not have the money to play the game into the game to keep those players who do love the game and have gotten into the game in the game. It's just cost prohibitive. It's too much travel. It's all these little things. And, and that's even going without like cultural and social issues within the sport. Basically, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I, that was a very like roundabout and I'm sorry, convoluted way to kind of give my state of the union. But we have a lot of work is, is kind of the what I want to get at. I 1,000 million gazillion percent agree with everything you just talked about. One of the things I want to, I, I want to kind of pick your brain on, and maybe you have some thoughts on, maybe you don't, but uh, how do we make it more accessible and open and, and give opportunities uh, to families so that it's not a matter of how much is in your bank account, but it's how much, you know, your child wants to play uh, being the determining factor of whether your child is playing or not. Uh, how do we provide more opportunities? You, you mentioned this pay to play system. I, I rail against it uh, all the time. Um, you know, I just to kind of give you a little background uh, a few years ago, I decided <clears throat> to start. It was a very small, it was kind of, um, it was almost an experiment, honestly, uh, a single squad travel club. And it was a non, like it was a free to play club. So you didn't pay anything to play. We provided all of the uniforms, all of our, our coaches. We, we volunteered. Um, we were literally like going into trailer parks and picking kids up to bring them to practice in a squad of 25. We had 10, um, countries represented, um, in every continent except Antarctica. Um, and this is in South Alabama. So if we, if we can pull it off here, it can be pulled off anywhere in this country. Um, because you know, Alabama is not known as the most, uh, diverse, um, <laughs> state when you look at, uh, at the, at the United States. Um, but we had, we had kids from all backgrounds, all socioeconomic status, um, you know, multiple languages, et cetera. And we figured out a way to, to do that and pay for that programming, uh, for them to provide them opportunities and ran that program for, for a couple of years. And, um, and then I had to transition out, uh, and it eventually ended up kind of shutting down once I, I walked away. But, um, that, that program provided opportunities for kids that were not in the system. And, and, um, and we did, we had, you know, a bunch of Latino kids, um, you know, and, and kids from all backgrounds, um, that, that came and played for us. Uh, every, every shade of, of skin color you can imagine was on the team, um, from the darkest to the lightest to anything. Um, and it, for us that it didn't matter. Like, it was just like, do you want to play? And yes. Okay. Well, let's find a spot for you. So, um, how, how do you see tackling this issue of getting beyond, uh, a system right now that is just so addicted to, you know, charging high fees to families. Um, and, and as you mentioned, it is a deterrent for a lot of people to be able to be involved, especially as they get older and, and, and want to be playing at a higher level. How, how do we, how do we find a path for those, those families that, that love the game, want to be in the game, but maybe don't have the bank account for the expensive pay to play system. 
Yeah, I think one of the, the ways to do that is kind to is we have a massive rec system set up in this country that still works in a lot of ways. Like kids can play for very cheap. I think the issue is that in those programs, we don't have good coaching. We don't have really have great resources. But I think if we were able to kind of put more money into coaching, education, into making just better coaches and people who can teach the game, it wouldn't necessarily lean on kids, like parents sending their kids to to go play for a select team at, at eight, nine, ten years old, um, where you go travel around all the time. You don't need to do that at 10 years old. Like you don't have to be on a travel team at, at eight, nine, 10 years old. Um, if kids could play at a good level and get good instruction for cheap at the rec level, I honestly think it would change so, so much. Um, say you play at a, a rec level till you're 10, 11, 12 right? at that level. And then because we're starting to have more of an academy system set up, you get identified at, at these, at these um, say it's rec at, at 10, 11, 12 years old. You're still playing in this where it's good level. You're getting good coaching. You're playing regular. You're having fun. And it's about having fun. That's what it is at that age. At 10, 11, 12, you're not like, yeah, you may think you're going to be a pro, but 90% of those kids are not going to be pros. What we need is them touching the ball regularly, having fun, playing everyone just in the game and enjoying it. And then from there, you identify the players who have something special, who will continue to play at the next level at 12 or so. And then maybe they go to an academy. And from there, the academy should be covered by the, the clubs themselves. And even if they go play for uh, an intermediate club team, um, I, I think that with we're not going to, let's be realistic. We're not going to eliminate pay to play in this country. It's America. Capitalism is king. So we're not going to eliminate it, but if we can, number one, get some of the kids that cannot afford to do that, keep them in a system where they can learn the game, have fun and not spend exorbitant amounts of money and then identify them. So, Hey, you have something special. We're going to bring, bring you to the next level. Say you live in DC at 12 years old, you're going to come to the DC United Academy because we saw you playing for like Loudon Rec. And you're going to come to DC United Academy. You're going to train with us. We're going to pay for your training. Uh, we're going to get you to training. We're going to either bust you in, whatever it is. Um, and that kind of precludes, it, it, it basically eliminates part of, uh, a big part of the issue where is that it's that like, between like nine and 13 where you're paying for like travel soccer in the hopes that maybe you'll go play for a good club team. And then in the hopes you'll get picked up by an Academy in the hopes you'll then go to college or play for a club, ideally a, a professional club. But I think kind of that like eight to 12 to 13 age range, if we could kind of build up our rec and lower level programs where it's both state and um government subsidized i'm not actually sure if rec is like government subsidized but basically the lower cost if we can improve coaching at those levels i think coaching is one of the biggest things we just don't have many good coaches we don't have places where kids can learn the game uh unless it's from like a parent who like often it's like an immigrant parent who grew up with the sport and they they teach their kid how to play but if we can get better coaching and better coaching education 
and lower the barriers for coaching education also because it's crazily expensive to, to get coaching licenses. Like even if you want to be a coach and you're not attached to a club, it's almost impossible to afford those fees. Um, and to be attached to a club, you have to have been a coach. So it's like a, it, it's a, it's a catch 22 situation. So I think improving coaching at rec levels, coaching education, um, would go a huge, would, would have a huge effect. I love your thoughts there. And, um, and, and agree. I, I, I really feel like, um, I, I, in an effort to try, I don't think it was a nefarious attempt here uh, a couple decades ago. I, I really think there's a lot of well-meaning people thinking, if, hey, look, if we take it more serious, if we do this, if we do this, we can improve soccer in this country. And so that that kind of built into this monster that it is now in terms of the pay to play and the expenses, um, you know, that, that weren't around, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but I think we, what we missed and what, what has happened as a, as a side uh, result of that is a lot of cities and a lot of towns around this country have programs that, you know, as you're calling them rec programs, community-based programs, whatever terminology you want to use, um, have kind of gotten forgotten. And it's like, well, you know, you can't really be a serious soccer player and play in those. You have to come over here and play in this. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always kind of laugh when I hear that because, you know, I go back, going back to reference, um, you know, where I'm from. I mean, you, you take a kid playing American football and they're playing for their, their, their local town team and they're playing against their other local town teams all in, you know, in a county uh, league setup. And, and eventually those kids are finding their way into the NFL. Um, you know, they're not paying thousands upon thousands of dollars to get there. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think we've, I think we've in an effort to try to improve the, the soccer, uh, development and programming, we've lost sight of the actual soccer piece of this. Um, and, and it's, it has become too reliant on, uh, making money rather than, than the programming itself. I do think there's ways to do that and, and, and make a living for sure, uh, from a coaching and whatever standpoint. But, um, to me, it's, it's, it's definitely gotten out of balance, uh, across the country. I don't know that you're going to fully ever put the genie back in the bottle, but I do think there's some things we could do in terms of having an open system, creating more opportunities for clubs to become professional, um, to have multiple layers and depth, uh, of levels of that so that some of those clubs could then, you know, operate in a way a European club operates and, and really invest um, their own resources into producing players and getting rewarded for it, um, you know, would also, I think, over time, make a systemic impact uh, on pay-to-play and access and opportunity for kids, regardless of their socioeconomic status. So, look, Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on the show, spending time with us, sharing your thoughts. We were literally all over the world in uh, in the conversation, and I love it. Um, <laughs> I definitely want to have you back on again uh, soon to, to dive into some more topics. But uh, how can people get connected with you if they're not already connected? And if they're not, shame on 
on them uh, with you uh, on social media, follow your stories, follow your work, uh, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So I am at A-Y-Y-Y underscore West, A-E-West on Instagram, Twitter. Um, that's where you'll see just about all of my uh, musings. And BR at BR Football is where all of my work is. Instagram, Twitter, you can find it there, the YouTube. Um, that's where everything I'm doing with BR will be. But personally, A-Y-Y-Y underscore West. And I, I really appreciate you having me on, man. This is a great conversation. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, your better half uh, has been on the show a couple times, and she uh, she she uh, was instrumental in, in helping getting us connected to have you on. I'm, I'm, I appreciate her doing that, and and really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, my last question for you as, as we head out is: What is it like being married to a better soccer player? Oh, it's great, man. I, it's amazing to have someone that, like, hey, I want to go kick around. I can just go kick around with my wife. Um, and I can play competitive one-on-one literally anytime. It's, it's one of the coolest things in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love watching those videos when, when you guys post them. Uh, it, it's it's, uh, it's certainly uh, fun, to, fun to watch. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, trash talking back and forth uh, in those moments, too, which always, uh, always makes it even more fun. So, look, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. We will be following your work and, uh, and, and really look forward to having you on again in the future. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is you too. That is Aaron West with BR Football, and uh, again, you can catch his work at BR Football or at A West. So uh, check him out online. We really appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll see everybody again on Monday.